This is Life Elsewhere, created and hosted by Norman B. Hello there. Welcome to Life Elsewhere. I'm Norman B. Coming up, a discussion on a topic that is not only important, it is unfortunately so often misunderstood. And the fallout from that can and does cause extreme hurt and suffering. The book is A Girlhood, Letter to My Transgender Daughter. The author is Carolyn Hayes. Now this is a pen name to protect the writer's family. A Girlhood is an important book. If you have questions or you believe you may have misunderstandings about what transgender means, you must listen to this conversation first. My guest is Marissa G. Franco. Her book is titled Platonic, How the Science of Attachment Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Marissa, welcome to Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. My very first question is going to have to be, why did you write this book? That's a great question, Norman. So in my young 20s, I went through some breakups and I I struggled after So I decided to start this wellness group with my friends where we met up, we cooked, we did yoga, we meditated, but really the most healing thing of all was friendship. It was just being in community with these people I loved who loved me. And I think having that experience made me start to question some of the beliefs that made my grief so hard. It was just the idea that only romantic love counts. Only romantic love makes me lovable and worthy. And I looked around and I was like, there's love all around me. It's always been around me. Why hasn't this love mattered? And so I kind of wrote platonic very much to elevate the perception of friendship in society. Uh, You touched on something which I think is going to, is going to touch with a lot of people. That is, you had some relationships that didn't go well. And I think if we're all honest, most of us have had a relationship or two that is that has kind of broken down or something. And and you're kind of, I don't know about you or anybody else, but I remember beating myself up for yeah. ages, going, what did I do wrong? How did I, how did this go wrong? Because I was madly in love, but this went crazy. What was, that's kind of normal though, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, yeah, that happens. And you know, the research finds that we'll be better at adjusting to that, to those breakups, those divorces, if we do have support and connection outside of that primary partner. You know, in reading your book, I something that a big takeaway for me was that I wondered whether you thought as you were writing the book or when you finished the book, that things have changed, that we live in different times now with things that are going on around us. Just just our world is so different that we treat relationships differently. What's, what are your thoughts on yeah. that? You know, it's funny, Norman, because I decided to write this book in 2019. But I will say after the pandemic, I think the truth that we can't rely on one person for everything became a little bit more evident to people when they were living at home with one person and still feeling really lonely and really isolated and really unfulfilled. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because connection is like this invisible healer. And so we're not always aware of the ways that it's really making us feel better, making us, I don't know, bringing us to our homeostasis, but the, the pandemic really showed us the power of it and the importance of it. It wasn't so invisible in the same way. So I would say that I feel like after the pandemic, there maybe has been more of a value placed on friendship and larger communities outside of just marriage. Yes. So let's get into it. When we talk about relationships, there's so many different areas. There's so many different ways we can describe relationships. And I, I, again, after I read your book, I, I asked, I did a little sort of my own kind of unscientific survey. And I asked people, could they just say to me in a couple of words what they thought a relationship meant? And it was so interesting, Marissa. I had, like, for instance, I asked the lady downstairs in the uh, the reception area, what did she think relationships meant? And she said, well, you know, I've been divorced twice. And she went on about being divorced. And it was almost 
nothing to do really with relationships. She was describing how hurt she'd been. I'm wondering for you, when you were talking to people doing your research and the, and the different people you talk about in the book, did you find that you had sort of so many different ideas about relationships and what relationships mean? Yeah. And I think a lot of time when you ask someone, are you in a relationship? You mean that primary romantic partner? Mm-hmm. Just there's so many ways that in our language, we devalue friendship, right? If if we decide to be friends and we were interested in each other romantically, we say we're just friends. And then if we were friends and we decided to, to become romantic, we say, let's become more than friends. Just the implication always being that sort of like friendship is really the inferior relationship. And I think this really harms us because when we see friendship as inferior, we treat it as inferior and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. We do not show as much affection. We do not prioritize spending time in the same way. You know, maybe we're not as vulnerable, right? And then our friendships are our lesser relationship. And we assume that that's natural or normal. When in fact, if we look at how we've been treating our friendships, you could understand and predict that any relationship that gets less time and attention is not going to be as deep or profound. Yes. What about, and and you talk about this in your book, about how relationships can be, and I'm not going to say restored, but how you have a breakdown in your your relationship, say with a with a friend. I'm just going to use a sort of a, a, a just a, a, an idea here. You're, you've got a friend that you every so often you argue with, and and it's kind of like the maybe the reason you argue is because you feel safe that you can argue with this person rather than say with your spouse or with your lover or whatever. Is that a is that a relationship or is that just a crutch? I honestly think of conflict as a a part of intimacy, um, right? In any relationship, there's going to be times when we disagree on things. You know, um, I think in your example, right, that that people that are arguing all the time and friendships, we actually find the opposite. People aren't arguing enough. Um, They're just retreating. They're getting resentful and they're pulling away. And by not actually bringing up the conflict, you don't get a chance for it to repair and for it to heal. Right. Yes. I, I, I think that the, the subtitle to your book is very important, how the science of attachment can help you make and keep friends. Let's talk about the science of attachment. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So the idea is that in our early relationships with our parents, we develop a sort of template for how people will treat us throughout life. And this template becomes a bit of a confirmation bias. We tend to assume people are treating us the way that you know our parents did or evolving relationships thereafter and not even register the times when they're doing something different. And so your template can really be one of three main ways. People that have had really healthy relationships early on, they develop what's called secure attachment. They trust people. They think other people will like and accept them. They're comfortable with intimacy. They're super friends. They're better at initiating according to the research, keeping and maintaining friendships. Um, but then you have the two insecure attachment styles and their early relationships have taught them that people are going to mistreat or abandon them. And so their personalities have fundamentally become a set of strategies to protect against the rejection they assume they face. The problem is that these strategies make it more likely that they will experience the rejection that they very much fear. But you just touched on something which I think is so crucially important, and that is family and Mm -hmm. how relationships to our parents or not, or to our siblings, perhaps. But our parents in particular is, I'm just presuming, Marissa, that every relationship is different for everybody else? Or is it? Is there a sort of a standard, do you think, for parents with children? Um, So you're you're sort of asking, like, do parents tend to treat their children in similar ways? I'm going to make sure I'm sure I'm understanding your point. Yes, Um, yes, yes. Actually, there's there's a lot of uh, variation, right? Mm. Um, You know, you have the sort of top-down parents who assume their, their kids are there to obey them. Um, you know, seen but not heard versus the parents who really want to encourage their kids to express themselves and are welcoming of that, right? Um, parents have different ideas as to how to make a kid strong, right? For some yeah. parents, it's if I support and nurture them, they'll be strong, which is probably more correct according to the research. But for other parents, it's if I don't support them, they're going to learn how to do it on their own, right? 
And um, there tends to be a lot of issues with, with that way of thinking, because as social creatures, we regulate our emotions through other people. We express our emotions to others and that makes us healthier. And in fact, how we how we develop the ability to regulate emotions on our own is that we share them with others and other people have responded lovingly and we've internalized that. That's really how we become strong. And so, you know, these different philosophies of parenting can really affect how you treat yourself and how you treat others throughout life. Yes, exactly. And this leads me to, to because whenever I read a book, particularly nonfiction, I always, of course, inject my own experience in. I relate mm-hmm. it to me. You know, like I can't help doing that. So I was thinking about the, the my growing up period with my parents, and I think they were quite loving. But I think I, with my son, I was much more loving than my parents were. I, you know, mm-hmm. I would tell him almost on the hour, every hour, you know, I love you. And, and it, it, it was very different. And I just wonder, mm. I wonder how much we learn from our parents. And I'm going somewhat going off on a tangent here. And it, it, that we sort of put, as you just said, we that's what we learn and that's how we then relate. And that's how we then go into our relationships. But do we learn from what we don't get or what we think we should get? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, there are some research that finds that like, neglect is worse than aggression in its impact on a child. So not getting that warmth, not getting that nurturance, it's very destructive for a kid. When you decided to write the book, not when you finished it, but when you decided, when you started to get the ideas together and collate the ideas, did you have a, 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 a concept of a beginning, a middle, and an end? Did, did you, Marissa, know how this book was going to formulate itself? Um, I would say it got a lot more sophisticated over time. At yeah. first, it was sort of like a, how to initiate a friendship, how to be a better friend, how to maintain the friendship. Now, the thesis is that how we've connected affects who we are, right? It shapes our personalities, whether we are warm, friendly, cynical, distrusting, vulnerable, all those things, all those qualities are determined by our previous experiences of connection or lack thereof. But then also who we are affects how we connect, right? It's not random. If we, you know, we're secure, if we have those healthy relationships, we naturally gravitate towards continued behaviors that further our relationships. And so the, the idea of the book is really how can we all access these healthy behaviors, even for those of us who have struggled in the past in our relationships? The reason I ask you that question is because you break the book down into part one and part two. Part one, looking back, how we've become the friends we are. Part two, looking forward, practices to make and keep friends. And I thought that was that was very clever. That was a, that was a good mm. way to do it. It was a smart way to talk about relationships I particularly found looking forward part two very interesting practices to make and keep friends. And then you go down, you break it into chapters, pursuing authenticity. That was one that stuck out for me. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So, you know, as I was reading the research on authenticity, that authenticity contributes to friendship. I was reading how people define authenticity and it wasn't clear to me. They would say things like your truest self, you know, being your truest self. And I was like, yeah, but how do we know if we're being our true self or not? And so I found this pattern in the research that people reported feeling most authentic when they felt most safe, when they around people made them feel accepted um, and loved. And so what I kind of concluded is that authenticity is who we are when we feel safe, when we're not hijacked by these defense mechanisms that we use to protect ourselves, but that also damage our relationships, right? And so just for an example of that, Norman, like I, sh- I share in the book, right? Your kid didn't get into college. Your friend's kid got into an Ivy League school. Yeah. If you are authentic, you're able to say this, I'm struggling with this. It's making me feel yes. a little jealous. I want to be happy for you, but this is the feeling that's going on for me. The defense mechanism protects you against that feeling of jealousy by damaging your relationship. You might say, you know, Cornell isn't actually the best Ivy League school anyway, or you might start withdrawing from that friend, right, as a way to help you help obscure that initial emotion, as a way to help push away that initial emotion. And if we can instead welcome, value, see, and allow that initial emotion, 
we will push ourselves into these defense mechanisms that ultimately damage our relationships. There's there's a part of the authenticity that I want to I want to sort of dig into just a little bit. And this goes back to how things have changed, how our world has changed. For instance, and I'm going to give you an example, and I hope this doesn't go on too long. Remember when Facebook first appeared and people would start, and I don't know if you experienced this, but I certainly did. People would talk to me about their friend. My friend said this and my friend said that. And then they would talk about how they disagreed with their friend. And I would ask a question like, well, it sounds like you were arguing with your friend. And I'm just thinking of one particular person. And they would say, well, yes, but, you know, that's what it's like on Facebook. So in actual fact, they weren't really genuinely friends. And I, yes, they were friends, but they were friends on Facebook. Is that friendship? I, I, I'm, mm. I'm just curious from your perspective, and, and particularly after reading your book, whether we can talk about that kind of disembodied friendship. Is, is, mm-hmm. is that really friendship? I think it depends. To me, there's a difference between good friends and good company. Good company, people who's, you know, that make me happy, whose energy that I enjoy. Um, I think they're funny. I think they're smart. Right. I like spending time with them. But to me, a good friend is a commitment and a responsibility. It means mm-hmm. I'm going to try to to show up in your times of need when you succeed. It feels like I succeed. I root for you. Um those sort of things, right? And so if our online connection begins to embody those qualities, right, where we're actually giving and receiving support and mutually happy for each other, then I think it can begin to develop into the realm of friendship. But I think if we're just online arguing with each other, I probably would not define Um, it as friendship. Yes, yes. Let me remind my listeners, if you just joined us, my guest is Marissa G. Franco. Her book is titled Platonic. How the Science of Attachments Can Help You Make and Keep Friends. Let's just focus in on, for a moment, just on the word platonic. There's almost something I think, bear with me once again, but slightly scary about the word platonic because Mm -hmm. it kind of means that it's not something else. And and I'm, Mm. I'm, I'm curious to know, Marissa, how you view that word platonic. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you're exactly right. I think a lot of us relate to the word platonic, like romantic love with some screws missing. You don't have sex. You don't have passion. Um, It's like almost like a relationship you're settling for. But in fact, you know, uh, philosophers, scholars in the past described it as a relationship so profound, it transcends the physical that when we don't have these, um, these social, these social dictates to keep us in a relationship when we don't have sex to keep us in a relationship, but decide to stay in it anyway, that it must be such a deep and such a profound relationship that feeds us and nourishes us um, so deeply. So then that leads to the question, does sex get in the way of a, of a relationship? I think, you know, sex can really get in the way of a friendship. By definition, friendship is non-sexual. So um, once you start having sex with your friends, you know, I don't even know if if they could really be considered friends anymore. Maybe sort of like uh, friends with benefits, for example. Um, But yes, it can make things messy. Which I've always thought was just a funny phrase because I don't know that sex is a benefit necessarily. (laughs) I mean, it almost sounds like you're downplaying it. When you when you had finished the book, what did you want the reader? What did you want me to take away? What was the big takeaway from Marissa? For me, it's we have these scripts for friendship that this is a once in a month, once a month happy hour friendship that is so limiting. And friendship can be so many different things. It can be as profound as your, you know, your life partner. You can choose a friend as your life partner. You can, you do all the things that you do in a traditional romantic relationship with your friends, like work through conflict together, like express deep affection towards one another. And that fundamentally intimacy is intimacy and connection is connection, right? And the same things that we need to do in all of our other relationships to maintain them, we also need to do in our friendships to maintain them. We can't take them for granted because to me, it's sort of like 
friendship is this gold under our feet, our feet that we've all just seen as concrete. And so we haven't stopped to marvel at it, but it can be marvelous if we know how to treat our friends and we know how to cultivate it. And I, throughout the book, am telling you exactly how to do that. I enjoyed your book and I, I appreciate you writing it. The title, once again, is Platonic, How the Science of Attachments Can Help You Make and Keep. I think that's so important, and keep friends. I've been talking to Marissa G. Franco, delightful guest. Thank you so much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. Have a great day. The links to all the books and music we feature on Life Elsewhere are always up at lifeelsewhere.co. Go there and subscribe so you can keep up to date with our shows and learn about our past shows and guests. Next, a very special conversation about a subject some people have a difficult time comprehending. My guest is Carolyn Hayes, a book a girlhood letter to my transgender daughter now this is a powerful compassionate yet deliberately informative work if you have any questions at all about the word transgender you have to listen to our conversation right after this this is life elsewhere hosted by norman b we would like to know what you think of our program send your comments to info at life elsewhere dot co that's c o sign for what's been what's been sign for the title of the book is a girlhood letter to my transgender daughter the author carolyn hayes carolyn welcome to life elsewhere hi thank you so much for having me i'm going to start with a very very big bold statement and that is thank you so much for writing this book mm. Um, yeah, it wasn't easy. So, <laughs> right. uh, yes, and it, it, I put it off for a long, long time. And I, um, I appreciate that. Thank you. I, I want to talk just for a moment about that, about putting it off for a, for a long, long time, as you say. And I think we should just let everybody know that this is a, a, a non de plume, a, 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 a stage name, if you like, that you're using and for very good reasons. But why do you think that it took you so long to to get to write this book, which is, I think, is so incredibly important? Mm, thank you. Um, yeah, I think that there are a few things. Um, first of all, I did have to wait till my daughter was old enough for me to publish it. But that doesn't really answer the question. I could have been writing it earlier, you know and really waited to hear because I, I wanted to write this down for my family as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm a novelist in my other workaday life. And, um, and I was writing certainly a lot during the years after this event that happened to us that kind of shook my family um, in the deep South um, yes. while, while raising a transgender daughter. Um, and um, and I, I think I just needed to process that. Uh, also, I, I wanted to, to make sure that she was fine. <laughs> yes. you know, yeah, I, I wanted there to be kind of this proof that it, at the end of it, there's a, you know, this, this, you know, child who's thriving in a family that's also thriving. And so um, I think there were a lot of impulses. You know, I was always taking notes as, as a writer, as a witness. I, I knew I was watching something and part of something that was really beautiful and chaotic and terrifying. Um, but also, yeah, I, I knew that I would write about it one day. Yes. This, I think, is, the, is, is a, a crucial part of the story, is that you, as you just said, you wanted to make sure that your daughter was comfortable and that you were comfortable, that your husband was comfortable and your other children were, were comfortable. Part of the story that I found just fascinating is you explaining, and you're writing this to your daughter, about how her siblings reacted and how they felt along the way. This is something that I'm not sure whether only parents would understand this or, or people that don't have children. I'd just like to get your take on that, Carolyn, because I'm a parent and I'm not sure that I would see it the same way if I wasn't a parent. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I think that sometimes when one of your kids is in crisis, um, the other kids do, you know, there are a lot of different things that happen with the other kids, but they still go yeah. on and they still need your attention and they still need your care. 
And um, and for us, I think that it's, it's interesting because my three older children are a good bit older than our youngest. Yeah, so I think when, when something happens with one child in a family, you know, you, you sometimes lose sight of the other kids. And, um, but it, in our situation, it really was something that I felt like it happened to the whole family. Um, yeah. So of course there was, of course there was our daughter's transition, which, you know, was one thing and they all rallied, but then to have somebody come at, come to our door, knock on our door, start an investigation and threaten the threat of having one of us, our baby, you know, the baby in the family um, taken away, you know, that we, the possibility that we could lose custody, that was a tragedy for all of us and a fear for all of us. So, um, and then throughout their lives, um, really looking at that and how it affected them was important. Let's just backtrack just a little for my listeners. Explain the, the incident that happened. You were in the South. The family was living in the South. We won't say where. Uh, and somebody reported that you had a transgender person. Let's put it like that in your home. Is that is that how it went? Yeah, it was curious because um, it was an anonymous call. And, you know, a lot of time was spent after the fact trying to figure out who made that call and trying to make yeah. peace with not knowing who made that call. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we there was a, a anonymous call made to the Department of Children and Families. Um, you know, my our daughter had just started using um, female pronouns. We were using female pronouns for her and let her go by a nickname okay. and let her you know, choose her own clothes, which were feminine. Um, and so, you know, that call was by somebody who didn't even understand the term transgender, honestly. Um, they, they used words like uh, homosexual, that, that we were forcing our child to be homosexual, which, you know, this was a child who, you know, was a child, you know, she had no yes. sexual orientation. I mean, it, was, it, it was somebody who really didn't understand at all. Um, but also felt very threatened uh, by it and, um, you know, uh, made that call. So then that and that started an investigation. This was back in 2011. Since then, of course, this past spring, the governor of Texas tried to make what happened to us, which felt like a terrible collision course, a terrible accident. Um, he, he tried to make it a law so that any parent raising a transgender child and supporting a transgender child would be investigated as a child abuser. So yes. there was no way that we would see that coming, that this book became more urgent, you know, uh, while writing it and after writing it. You just said something which I think is really important and we need to emphasize is that the person, the anonymous person that reported the situation didn't understand they didn't understand so much that they were talking about you raising a homosexual and 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 this misunderstanding of what transgender is is crucial and it's obviously crucial to to what you write about in a girlhood let's talk about that carolyn just for a moment this this complete misconception this misunderstanding this just total ignorance if you like of what transgender means can you just give us from your from your perspective and raising your daughter how confused people are about what transgender means? Well, you know, what's interesting is that we all have a deeply held gender, you know. Yeah. When I wake yeah. up in the morning, I know I'm a woman. I, I, yes. I go about my day, you know. Um, but when it when it's when it doesn't connect with all the cues around you, yeah. you know, when when you have a firmly held belief, but that you're a girl, for example, but the world around you is saying, no, you're a boy, you're a boy, you're a boy. Um, you know, that, that is, is very confusing for, for, for the child, but, you know, also for the family. Um, and so, yeah, of course, you know, most people at this point think they understand what being trans is, but of course they really don't. And mm -hmm. people really want it, want gender to be simple. They want yes. it to be male or female. And, um, and we're, as we're completely happy and fine with a lot of things being more complex in science and, and physics and, you know, medicine and, you know, uh, people are not willing to let anything be more complex about gender. You know, it should yes. be glanced at at birth and obvious 
for anybody to see and that's what it is forever and there's no complication. So, but of course the brain is involved. We, we have, we're a whole system. Of course, you know, being in utero is fascinating and interesting and, and has a lot to do with how gender is formed through the wash of hormones. And there's all different kinds of things that we're really starting to understand about the complexity of gender and that we're not necessarily in boxes. We all have like a feminine and a masculine that we feel most comfortable with. And most people are not at the very edges of hyper-masculine and the very edges of hyper-feminine. We all, right. kind of, most of us, you know, are, are a little bit more, uh, you know, kind of not at the edges. Um, and then some are flipped, you know? Yeah. Uh, and then my daughter went through very normal childhood development of understanding her gender. Um, so we all go through childhood development of understanding our gender. You know, at nine months, we know this. At three years, we know that. At mm -hmm. five years, we, you know, so, and my daughter did all of that. She just did that um, when we thought she was born a boy, uh, you know, and, yeah. and she did all of that as a girl and went through all those stages that any pediatrician should be able to tell you she went through them as a girl. Yes. Something I'd like to point out to my listeners. Let me remind my listeners that I'm talking to Carolyn Hayes. The book is titled A Girlhood Letter to My Transgender Daughter. Something which I think is so important about your book is that you go into everyday details. You talk about things that that anybody, parent or not, can identify with. Just the sort of the day-to-day -day routine. You talk about it, but you also go into detail. You talk about your baby in utero you also talk about you had a cesarean for this child and and it's these are the kind of things that that i think anybody reading your book can go oh i understand this but in the same time if they don't understand what transgender is all about you explain it carolyn in such i'm not going to say well yes it is graphic it's in graphic details but it's in such loving details what how you go about it is is so it's so touching it's so tender throughout the book page after page it's just like oh yes i totally understand uh, as a human being let alone being a parent can you talk about that about that sort of i guess that emotional part that you that you you put into your book all the way through you don't hold back Mm, yeah. Well, I mean, I, and I do bump up against faith too in this book. I mean, I, yeah. I think that I would say that actually I embrace faith in this book and I bump up against religion, <laughs> but, yes. um, but yeah, the, the complexity uh, of gender and how it's formed, um, you know, to me is fascinating and beautiful and complex. And, you know, you know, it's, it's this incredible architecture of, of who we are in this deeply held belief and, it's so deeply held that for me, when my daughter really asked me to call her by female pronouns, yes. it was around her beauty. You know, she said, when you say I'm beautiful, say she, say yes. she is beautiful. And to me, that was the moment. It was, a, it was a very kind of spiritual moment for me because I really felt like how somebody wants to be seen as beautiful is part of the reflection of their soul. It isn't about you know, a perfect little nose or something like that, but <laughs> yeah. it's really deeply held. And so for me, this whole book, doing the research on the brain and anatomy and, and you know, uh, genetics and, and all of that stuff that gets layered in um, while telling a story about a big, loud, chaotic, happy family <laughs> um, yes. in, in a really difficult, difficult moment um, and dangerous moment. Um I was really also just talking about, you know, the beauty of that. And to me, that is, is, is about God. I think, you know, and I say like in our family, we don't snub God, you know, you don't snub him <laughs> um, by saying, yeah, gender is simple. It's boy or girl. No, you say, wow, look at this incredibly complex human body and mind and soul, you know, that's walking through and, and our, my daughter's journey completely opened us up Um and made us look at the world in a much more interesting way and broke, really broke us open. Um, you know, you know, my, my, my husband and I, um, you know, and was part of just seeing the world as beautiful. So yeah, uh, I, I definitely went in with a lot of love. That's for sure. 
Carolyn, one word that I wrote down here before I started talking to you, and as we've been talking, I've circled it a number of times, and you just mentioned it. That word is religion. I wanted to get in to talk about religion with you. You've covered just a little bit of it, but now let's let's really go into it. You you are a Catholic. Mm-hmm. You were raised as a Catholic, and you still practice as a Catholic. Is that right? Oh, it's complicated, I would say. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so religion has played an important part in your life, in raising your children, in your marriage. You've sort of made it sound to me as if religion still plays an important part, or, or does it? When I ask you if you're still a practicing Catholic, you're sort of a little hesitant, it sounds to me. So I'm just wondering how important religion is to you now these days yeah i would say that faith is is stronger than ever um Uh very much a part of my daily life yeah um throughout my day um you know preparing for this interview um but i would say that you know religion it has just become just much too complicated and and weighed down by you know you know human beings messing things up Um, yes and power and greed and things like that. So, um, yeah, so I, you know, I will say that, um, yeah, I, w- I was raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school in some ways in the book when I really kind of, you know, t- try to take on the Vatican <laughs> yes. example, which was, you know, a, a, you know, pretty, a fool's errand. Um, but uh, when I really tried to meet them with as much love as I could find in, in, in their statements on gender, um, you know, that was important to me. And um, I did come at it um, with an open heart. But also, too, I'm the monster that they made. You know, I was I went to Catholic school from sixth grade through college. So if they find me to be someone who asks a lot of questions, um, that's because I was well educated yes. <laughs> <by> them, <laughs> to ask a lot of questions about faith and about love and about acceptance and what we're really supposed to be doing here. Yes. Know? In writing this book, Caroline, you knew that at some point you were going to be talking to people like me, not necessarily somebody somebody as sympathetic as me. Maybe you're going to be talking to people that are going to be questioning and going to be a little bit more aggressive. How did you how did you think about that? How what what was your take on the take that you that you might have to sort of defend what you'd written? Yeah, things have gotten so much worse. Um since writing the book since you know even just through the publication process it comes out you know next week um i mean last week you know we had bomb threats against boston children's hospital yes um you know people were so inflamed by uh the the libs of tiktok um that i believe that that's it was a direct result um it's hard to it perhaps it's not a direct result but it seems pretty clearly that you know they were targeting um the gender clinic there and the doctors there and there were death threats and the attorney general had to step in to um and people were so so upset by the idea and what they'd gotten wrong about what was going on what goes on at, at that at that clinic which is just does incredible work for children and families um that they were willing to do a bomb threat that delayed leukemia treatments, bone marrow treatments, uh, children with rare diseases, children who were there, um, you know, in, in, in tra- fighting for their lives. Yeah. Um, so people are not rational. And I also do believe that the people who made those bomb threats and really derailed the lives of children who are actively fighting things like cancer. Mm-hmm would be the same people who would bring lasagnas and who would rally together and do fundraisers in their local community for kids with cancer. Yes. yes. Um, I think that people become very irrational um, uh, when it comes to these things and seeing people who, especially politicians who know better, who have met with transgender families, uh, but who are still using politics to stoke the fires and the flames up and get their their um their base fired up about an issue that is just such a non-issue yes um it, it it's really actually quite terrifying 
So, yeah, I do know that there's a possibility that someone, you know, decides to out us or dox us or I'm very aware that the whole thing that I'm doing right now is really re-triggering a trauma (laughs) of what happened to us already. But, you know, that decision, we made that decision as a family. We need to humanize this group of people. They need to see real face, you know, feel these real lives and know these real lives and these families. And so um, I wrote the book. Um, I don't know that any of the people who would make calls to bomb threats to a, a, a children's hospital are going to read the book. Yes. Uh, but I am, we are aware that it's a dangerous um, gambit. What did you decide? How did you edit for yourself about what to put in and what not to include? Because as I said earlier, you give lots of details. You give lots of, almost as almost every day, it's like I can identify with so much that you talk about in your book, everyday things. But you're talking about your transgender daughter and it's a letter to your daughter. So it's kind of complicated on a number of levels, yet it's also simple. Uh, I'm curious about the just the, the editing process for you, Carolyn. How, how you, what was the process for you to, to, to make the decisions about what to put in and what not to put in? Um, well, you know, it, it, it was a lot of research, but it was also the researchy part, you know, is just because yes. you're living your life and, you know, you're, you're thinking about gender in these ways. And then these stories kind of come to you as you're reading about science or, you know, a history or, um, you know, the, the, the first British person to do a cesarean <laughs> was yes. a trans man. Um, so you kind of end up picking up all this stuff. You look at, I want blueberry bushes. And then you realize, oh, this is about gender. <laughs> blueberry bushes have genders, you know, botany. Yeah. So it really, a lot of that research came to me as, you know, my eyes were opened. Um, but when it came to, um, when it, I didn't also, I couldn't write the book for a long time. Going back to your first question, I could not write the book for a very long time because I didn't know who I was writing it to. And right. I could write it yep. to, I was writing at the same time to, to maybe a trans adult who knew everything about being trans yes. on their own perspective. And maybe it was writing to somebody who really had no understanding whatsoever and was a, a grandparent trying to figure out how best to love and accept and figure out what it means to be trans for their grandchild. So um, I had no idea. But once I realized I was writing for her, that was the biggest editorial tool I had because it helped me really um, kind of figure out what I was saying um, and who I was saying it to. Um, And so, of course, I dial up and dial down to to, to explain things to people throughout the book. Yes. But I also was very careful. There's there is obviously a lot more about uh, there's obviously a lot more about her life um, that it, that's more private um, and about our family that's more private that I don't share. And I gave the book to my my children and let them um, read it, um, my grown children and said, you know, what, what do you think? Um, and there were things actually they ended up adding things <laughs> and correcting yeah. a few things. Uh, so um, but yes you know i had i had guiding principles as i went in did you ask your daughter to 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 look at the drafts or, or to to give you some input into the book yeah there was actually one scene in there that i had not really fully explained to her something that had happened oh, yeah yes yeah and um so, so i read aloud to her um yeah. and i mean she's obviously she's now she's a teenager so she could read it herself but the reading aloud kind of helped us stop and talk and why you know yes yeah um so there was one part that and i wasn't really ready to tell her this one thing yet and so i took it out of the book <laughs> um because i just felt like i i can't read it aloud to her um mm. And so uh, that there, so there are still some things that I, I haven't fully explained to her that you know aren't there, um, and yeah. that was also a rule. Yes, I'm really enjoying talking to you because this is such an important subject, and I think there is the as I said right at the very beginning, I, I really appreciate you. Thank you for for writing this book. When you finished the book and you took it to the publisher and had a, an editor and all the rest of it, was there a point, Carolyn, when you thought to yourself, oh, gosh, 
maybe I've said too much. Well, I, just give me a sort of an overview of your of your thoughts. You, I think it sounds like you get where I'm going with this. Yeah, I do. I do. <laughs> I was watching the beginning of the documentary. Don't f with cats, right? I don't know yeah. if you've ever seen yeah. this documentary. Yeah. Anyway. And these were people who were tracking down somebody and, and who had killed cats. And I was so wanted them to track down this cat person. I thought it was just yeah. horrible. Um, but one person did, but all they had were small interiors of the room and they had a doorknob. And one person spent an entire day tracking down European doorknobs to try and figure out where that, where that doorknob <laughs> would be most likely. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, oh my gosh, I've given people... 350 pages of doorknobs but yeah. very loud and obvious ones you know that anyone can open and, uh, you know so uh obviously yeah i mean what we really want is for the pen name to really reaffirm to especially people in the press and that to say look there's a real family here there yeah. there are real lives and and it is dangerous for you know us to be outed so um, but we also know that it is it is just as flimsy a bubble um, writing this book as it was flimsy a bubble when we lived in the deep south and thought we were protected because, you know, our little town usually voted Democrat. Right. right. Yes, <laughs> uh, yes. And it was it was a, it had a college, so it was a little liberal. So we would be fine. Um, and how quickly that bubble burst for us and the south and that became dangerous. Um, so. Yeah. So that part of it, I still, you know, wake up in the middle of the night <laughs> um, with anxiety around it because, you know, um, it, you know, it, it is it is a little scary right now uh, yes. in this country. Well, please, please don't wake up too often during the night because you, you've done a remarkable job and, and you and your daughter and your family have, have, have really, I think, helped a lot of people. But having said that, let's go back to the question of people that don't understand people mm -hmm. that rush the judgment so quickly. I, I was talking just recently to somebody, an educated person, somebody that I won't say, I won't give a name or whatever, but somebody you would think would know better. And he said to me, well, you know, all these drag shows and these RuPaul shows and everything, that's what's really made it bad for everybody. Cause everybody thinks that if you just put on a frock, you're suddenly a woman. And he was completely not only misinformed, but but had, had gone off on a sort of a, a tangent of, of just misinformation. And, and, and I wonder for you how often you come across that or whether you how you deal with that, with this just you I mean, you've written the book, obviously, right. but it's, yeah. it's got to be frustrating for you. It's incredibly frustrating because I know how to prepare. It's, it's weird. I think uh, I, I I have a, a huge amount of patience and and love, and I go into the space when I'm mm. talking to people who don't get it. But if they can meet me a little bit with with the tiniest bit of good intention, I can. Even though I good intentions are really tricky, um, <laughs> I feel like I, I I go into this place emotionally where I'm very calm and full of love and I can do it. And so when somebody comes in from the far right or the religious right, or, you yeah. know, you know, I tend to go to this place and I can, I can, I have this very, unlike me, <laughs> this ton of patience that I sometimes don't have, you know, maybe in traffic or something. <laughs> oh, I have, yes. I have yeah. a ton of patience, but I, I'm never quite prepared when the, when people on the left and intellectuals, so-called intellectuals, uh, throw a punch i'm always i always leave that plank open and um and they're far more dangerous because um if somebody doesn't know something and doesn't understand i can give them information and then they understand but when someone comes to me with i understand everything I, i'm an intellectual i'm a feminist i'm you know i get it yes. um i i have done all my education i was in all this like i'm a i'm a phd i <laughs> I've studied all of this. Uh, I know everything. There's so little room there for me to to make any headway, and it's even very hard to even ex explain our humanity. Just that we're human beings, like everybody else, just trying to make it across town. You know, just to, just making it in our lives, and we want that to be, you know, we want better health outcomes. We want just regular civil rights. You know, <laughs> like so you have to start really at ground zero. It's very hard. Um, yeah. 
I grew up with Flip Wilson, so <laughs> so did the person who said that to you. So um, I'm not exactly sure what their argument was. Um, and and also, I, I tell everybody to watch Disclosure because if you think, oh, I don't have any opinions, I wasn't inundated with media uh, about to to be transphobic. Watch Disclosure. You were <laughs> in oh, yes. media yes. to to be transphobic, and and I certainly. Um, have dealt with my own transphobia because I, I felt it in myself. And when I first heard that word, I remember where I was standing, you know, the phone call I was on when I first heard that word. And I thought, oh, that's that discomfort. That's that thing I feel inside of myself, you know, that. And, and so I've, I've had my own transphobia. Um, yeah, so I get it. After I read your book and I finished it about, a, I don't know, a week, two weeks ago, I was so thrilled with reading the book and I, I was so excited about talking to you, but I also wanted to let my, my audience know about it. So I, I sent out a tweet that said, I just read a girlhood letter to my transgender daughter. And then I added, this should be in every school. And I really believe that, Carolyn. I think this is where we need to begin to, to start with things. It's in schools, education. There's so much mis information out there this is such an important book and the way that it's written i think it could easily be in a school library of course i say that knowing only too well there are a lot of people that think that would be absolutely the worst thing in the world to have a book like this in the school library which is so sad it's so sad just like to get your take on that uh well there are a lot of great kid books with uh trans characters yes. Um, which I, I would, you know, and, and also, you know, Benjamin Buttons, not, not Benjamin Buttons, sorry. Um, what is his name? B oh, Buttons. Shoot. Oh, I know what you're talking about. Talking yes. about the guy. Yes, yes, yes. It's an old book just about hey, a boy. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. there are, uh, there are also books that go way back that kind of deal with gender, you know, yeah. um, we'll look it up and, and, and give it to the audience later. Yeah. yeah. Um, Anyway, so there are a lot of really great books like that and, um, you know, that come at gender in different ways and allow kids to, you know, um, think about gender because it also, it, it, once you have a conversation about gender, it's not for the, necessarily just for the, the transgender child who might be in that class. No, no, no. All the kids to say, you know, why do, you know, it helps with boys who, who, who are already being so pigeonholed you know to only play with masculine things or only or girls to only play with feminine things and so it allows kids to to kind of break down some of those um some of those those stereotypes and then you know move between them and, and question them um i i think that the book i don't know that this book would be helpful in any classroom even well high school maybe there was a uh, the italian edition um you know did, did go to some some teens who did a fantastic job Mm -hmm. uh, of of discussing it um but certainly for educators you know who have a trans kid in the class or a, a child who's you know gender non-conforming and don't really know what to do um uh that i think and and you know administrators this book would be helpful to them and there is a wonderful principal <laughs> who exists in the book uh yes who, who's such a great character uh, and and also based on obviously a real person um so, and we have had really great support from schools, um, you know, throughout. So, uh, so I think that that's, that's important. You're right. I think getting it to administrators and teachers who are, who need more language and more understanding. Um, and certainly I would love to see it in, in, in more faith, uh, based, um, yes. schools because it could help, um, you know, it saves lives and those, in those places, it really can save lives because, uh, we know that, you know um, that this that there is a high risk of high you know, risk suicide attempt. Yes, you know it's, uh, it can be up to fifty percent, I think, for trans boys in the forties for trans girls, and um, and certainly that is you know such a big risk. And we know that you know especially with young gay men, you know we lost a lot of young gay men, and you know in the Catholic uh, congregations and churches and um, to suicide because there was so much shame around um, just being gay uh, in my childhood. Um, so we'd, we'd like to not do that again. <laughs> let's, right. 
Let's, do you think, do you think, Carolyn, do you think that these days, outside of the obvious places where, where there's not more of a liberal attitude, but do you think in schools these days, the, the school kids, I'm talking about high school now, mm-hmm. are, are a little bit more accepting, a little bit more understanding, a little bit more, I don't know, sort of okay with, with, with what's going on. Anybody that's different is okay. I say this based on personal experience with my son, who's now 20. But when he was in high school, he came home one day and told me that he said that such and such has just decided that they, they are now going to be she. And he, and he had another friend who had been had known since he was in kindergarten that now decided that she was going to be he. And um, I'm not laughing. I'm just like trying to remember which pronouns he used there. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and my son at the time, and I said, well, what do you think about that? He said, I don't care. He said, it's just great. They're really good people. I don't care what, what they want to be. He said, I know who I am and they know who they are now. It just makes it easier. So I'm just wondering, was my son an anomaly in that respect? Or do you feel that there's more of a more of a sort of a, 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 an ease and understanding, despite the fact that we see this sort of hysterical stuff coming from the right the whole time. Yeah, it, it, in my experience, kids get it. And yeah. they uh, really don't skip a beat, right? It, I mean, you know, when my daughter has come out to people, friends, um, they'll say, oh, okay. Yes. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, yeah. uh, you know, that they just, you know, um, I can do cartwheels and they go, great. Yay. And then they both (laughs) exchange something that's personal to them and they move on. Right. So, um, so kids get it. Um, And then on the middle school level too, um, certainly, you know, the friends that she had uh, who she did um, come out to were, you know, super supportive and then just was not that big of a deal. Um, Yeah. So I do think I have a lot of faith in, in the next generation Um, really, really, you know, taking this in stride. Um, And I think because again, um, they understand that things are complex, you know, that everything in their lifetime has been, you know, Oh, we just found out that it's not just X, Y there's X, X, Y and X, 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 Y, Y. And they go, Oh, okay. Um, So you know, they're learning, um, you know, that, that science, medicine, technology, um, you know, is, is not just what you think. I mean, I can't think of anything really. That's like just, there's just two options, you know, <laughs> um, in, in science, medicine and all that, even blood types. We thought that there was this and it's actually, no, I mean, yeah. you know, we thought that there were, you know, only these senses and turns out that we have a lot more senses. Um, so, uh, so yes, I think that they they get it and they've been um, re- they're, they're real thought leaders on this. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's the it's my generation and and older who um, are fighting it so hard and, and sometimes for good reason. I mean, I understand the feminists sometimes, you know, I understand their fears sometimes when they're talking about gender as a social construct was such an important thing for them to fight back and be able to say, no, this was put on me, yes. um, but it's not actually helpful when we're talking about a, a deeply held understanding of your gender. And so, you know, um, you know, the older feminist, my generation, when I say older, I mean me. Um, <laughs> and uh, sometimes there's a real stuckness there that, um, and of course, when it's radicalized and it's, you know, um, trans exclusive, radical feminist turfs, then it becomes really, really damaging and um, causes harm. Carolyn, it, it, it is a terrific book. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I wish you and your daughter and your family the very, very best. Thank you once again for writing the book. It's titled A Girlhood Letter to My Transgender Daughter. I've been talking to Caroline Hayes. Caroline, thank you so very much for joining us at Life Elsewhere. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to my guests, Marissa G. Franco and Carolyn Hayes. The links to their books are up at lifeelsewhere.co. Now, there are a number of support groups for transgender people. One is translifeline.org. That's dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for listening. Till next time, I want you to be well, be safe, and you know it makes sense. Be nice. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Life Elsewhere, created 
and hosted by Norman B. Life Elsewhere is written and produced by Norman B. Guest booking and additional research by Stephanie Lane. Behind the scenes assistance by James Van, Bruce Goodman, and Allison Klein. We love to hear what you think about Life Elsewhere. Send your questions, queries, and comments to info at lifeelsewhere.co. That's C-O. Thank mm-hmm. you.